Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Second Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 28. Whether you have a hard copy Bible like the one I'm using or your online Bible. And by the way, whether I'm, I'm everybody, I'm glad that you're here. But for those that are online, uh, no matter what campus you normally attend, we're glad that you're here with us this morning and hope that it feels like we're right there uh, in whatever your venue is, your living room, your office. And we hope it feels like you're right there with us. And so 2 Timothy chapter 2, we, we just finished a series as Pastor Brandon's reference called Only God Can Do It. And here's why we did that, because as we were praying, uh, we just feel like that what we need to do as a church, but in response to all that's going on in the world is we need to come back and remind ourselves what did God promise would happen uh, for us as, as people of God, but particularly in the last days, and how do we begin to posture ourselves for that? And the Bible does talk pretty explicitly in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Titus, all the way back, Jesus outlined some things in Matthew chapter 24 about what would be the telltale signs of of the last days. And you can check the boxes. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't even have to be a Christian. Just look at the list and be like, wow, that's happening like right now intensely and, uh, and, you know, consistently. And so we know we're in the last days. We don't know where in the last days could be you know, the last days could be by the, before the message is over, or it could be another X amount of years. We don't know that, but we know it's like super close. And Jesus said, when you see all this thing, you're super close. Well, the other thing that he said was if you're a believer, number one, you don't have to be afraid. Uh, number two, you don't have to be susceptible to being deceived. In other words, you, you can have a really good perspective of what's going on, even though on the large, everybody's like, what in the world is going on? Well, I, I don't, I can't sort it all out, but here's what I can tell you is happening. And the Bible says that as we do that, that we can allow the Lord to help posture our hearts. So the last days for Christians actually are some of the most exciting. I'm not saying they're all pleasant. They're all super fun. They're all super easy, but God shows up. I mean, real time and does stuff like only God can do. And he does it in a very demonstrative way. And unlike people who don't have a relationship with God, Christians don't have to be beat up and beleaguered and barely scraping by, but Christians can be focused and moving forward, and God can continue to bless their life. In fact, that's part of the end, you know, the the final scene, so that people that don't believe in God can say, how are you doing that? And they get to see that we serve not just a distant God, a religious God, an idea, but we serve a living Christ that is right here with us, doing life with us, and will step in and intervene. So we're posturing ourselves to do what only God can do so that uh, God can move in our lives. Well, I want to start in 2 Timothy chapter 2 because Paul's talking along these lines again. Just another chapter or two, he's going to get into some end time stuff. But here's what he says in chapter 2 verse 15. He says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. Now let me just stop and highlight so you don't miss it. This gives us a very important insight as believers, people that have committed our life to follow Christ, and that is that you and you alone are responsible to present yourself to God as, as something, someone that's been approved. 
Now, you're not responsible to, you know, put all the pieces and build your life, and that's what the Holy Spirit comes to do, but you're the one responsible, not your spouse, not your pastor, not your mentors, not the guys and the you know, gals that you listen to on podcasts, and all those things are great, and all those things are helpful tools. All those people are certainly wonderful along the journey, but when we get to heaven, you're going to stand in front of your God all by yourself. You're not going to be able to say, well, let me tell you, but it was my spouse's fault. Well, yeah, but if, if my pastor would have, no, no, you're responsible to make sure that you show yourself approved to God and he narrows it for us. So it's not just this broad nebulous thing. He said a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Okay. So that means that our life should have these reflections that we are involved in the kingdom of God endeavors. In other words, if you're a believer and you say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't see anything anywhere in your life that says that you're engaged in kingdom stuff, then I'm like, uh, where's the disconnect? But he says one of the ways that we will be approved by God is by being a worker that doesn't have to be embarrassed. When the boss shows up, we're not caught sleeping or you know, dwindling our time, but we're doing what we're supposed to do. We're moving and doing what we're supposed to do. And he narrows it down even farther. He says, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that term rightly dividing is a real interesting term because it's, it's a term that was used for a seamstress who when they had laid out a pattern and they measured all their material, it was time to start cutting out the pattern before they actually started sewing. And that word, uh, the, um, rightly dividing, literally means to cut on a straight line. To, to, to pay attention to where the lines are and to cut straight down the line. And you know that becomes increasingly important the deeper into the last days we get because the lines get real blurry. There's a lot of opinions even in the church around the world. The church is dividing and the church is fracturing and splintering. And we need to come back to the Bible to say, well, I don't understand all that. I don't know why they say that. I don't know, why they, I don't know how they get to that conclusion. Here's what I do know. The Bible says... And that helps us to cut a straight line through all the confusion and all the opinions and, and all, you know, all the preferences and all the styles and everything, just to cut a straight line and say, I, I, I don't, it makes my head hurt. I don't, I don't know all that. Here's what I do know. Right down the middle, this is what the word of God says. And I'm just going to stick with that as my center line. And then I kind of begin to think through everything. And so Paul says, uh, we're supposed to be diligent to present ourselves to God, a worker, not needing to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And, and you say, well, but how important is that? Well, let me bring you back to the first two words in the English, at least. He says, be diligent. One word in the Greek, it's the word spudadzo. Super important word. Because this word is one of those highly focused and intentional words used all over the, the, the New Testament, by the way. And this particular word means to enthusiastically exert oneself. It means to strain every nerve, to push yourself to the point of exhaustion, and, and to do it all towards a steady pursuit of something that has merit, something that has value, something that needs to be a constant in your life. In fact, when you step back and you look how it's used across the, the, the New Testament, it's translated in a bunch of different ways. Uh, some, some verses and translations uh, use the word endeavor, which means you're, you're going on an intentional focus. You're, you're going to try to do something very intentional. Uh, it's also translated as the word study, which we're going to find out why. Uh, that you, you need to really understand. What, what does the Bible say? What, what are the truths around this so that I just don't go and start doing a bunch of stuff, but what is the right thing to do? 
How do I roll this right down the middle? And then it also shows up a number of places uh, and, and emphasizes labor. In other words, I'm actually doing something. I'm not just thinking, I'm not just believing, I'm not just you know, strategizing, but I'm believing. But when you put all this together, it really does capture three different elements that come together. The first one is there's a thoughtful strategy. I'm not just kind of doing a bunch of stuff because isn't that one of the versions of insanity? Just keep doing the same thing over and expecting different results. But it's, it's I'm stopping and I'm, and I'm saying, but what, what am I supposed to do? I'm very intentional, very careful about managing my time and my energies and my focus and my, my thoughts. And not only that, but it also encapsulates, once you've got a good strategy, this zealous action. So I don't just think about it and make a good plan. I got to do something. I gotta move some things around, I gotta get in action, I gotta do something. And the last one, uh, it, it implies an intentional assessment or measurement towards effectiveness. Again, not just busy, 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 and God says, yay, you're doing great, but busy doing the right things, the most effective things, and, and learning the whole way, constantly assessing and, and dialing it in and tightening. So all of that together, Paul says, especially as we get into the last days, he's in his second letter, he's two chapters away from talking about the perilous, dangerous times and how it'll be so slippery and a bunch of Christians will literally move away from the faith because they're not spudazzo, being diligent to really understand what does the word of God say and be able to cut right through all the chaos and the craziness and cut a nice straight line. Well, because of that, we're starting a brand new series today called Building a Strong Christian Life. And, and it's really about posturing our heart and re-examining what does it mean to be developing strength and solidity in our, in our Christianity. And, and I'm going to use this illustration because I think it, it just helped me at least to, to find the right focus. I, I want you to think about building a, a strong Christian life like following a recipe. Any, any great recipe has ingredients, multiple ingredients. Now, all of those ingredients are not at the same proportion. It might be two cups of this and a half a cup of that and, and you know, a teaspoon of that. And, and then some of the older, you know, older ingredients passed along are a pinch of this, whatever a pinch is, but it's a pinch of something. And, and, and not only that, so different ingredients, different measurements, but, but it, they're also, uh, there's also a right time and a right approach to fold them in. You don't always stick everything in the bowl all at the same time, and there you go. Some things you put these things together, and then you got to bake that for a while, and then you come back and you put these things, and then you pour that over, and then you come back. And, and so there, there's, there's applications to it. And, and finally, if you'll do those things consistently, then the recipe says that you can duplicate Whatever your desired result was from generations back, you can still be duplicating that same desired result and say, yeah, that's just like great-great-grandma used to make. This has been in our family forever. Well, in a similar way, the New Testament teaches that there are spiritual ingredients that were laid down for the early Christians that help us to build a Christian life that was similar to what, was, what the Bible was promising there and what Paul was writing about. And so we're going to look at those as ingredients, but we probably should, you know, graduate to refer to them as disciplines. But they were disciplines that show up and in the lives of the early Christians, which enabled the Holy Spirit then to begin to shape their life and to mold them and to, to do something in them that produced a different result than they could have done on their own, but a result that helped them to live the life that Jesus promised uh, this life to the fullest capacity. Now, the reason we have to talk about it and the way we're going to talk about it is because while just like in the Bible and today, recipes really don't change much over time. 
the ingredients are the ingredients. And so brands and, you know, maybe how, how that ingredient is prepared in the culture today, but, but recipes don't change. Uh, but the generational approach to recipes has changed. Let me just give you an example that works for me. Let, let's take a cake, birthday cake, you know, some other celebratory cake. When I was growing up, when we, had to, when we had to have a birthday cake, my mom would immediately go to the cupboard and start pulling out ingredients. When I was older and I was married and we had to have a birthday cake, uh, Debbie or I would run to the store and find the cake mix that we wanted. When I talk to some of my adult kids today and it's time for a birthday cake, they're looking, uh, looking up where their favorite bakery is to order the cake. Now, I'm not there yet, but I'm anticipating the possibility my grandkids are going to grow up, and I'm going to get a phone call when they move into their first place. Hey, there's this big box in my kitchen. Yeah, sweetie, that's your stove. Leave it there. You'll need it someday. Just trust me on that one, but, but don't take it out. Whatever you do, just leave it right there. And, and so the point is, in the same way in Christianity, you can see the same graduation, right? We today don't really understand what the early Christians understood, and I won't even go back to the book of Acts. I'll just go back a few generations, like, for example, my parents. We don't understand what it means to devote yourself to the things of God. We don't understand what it means to sacrificially lean in and give parts of your life away to the things of God. We don't know what it means that at times it's uncomfortable and it's awkward and it creates, you know, a rub in your life when you're trying to insert a discipline that will bring a value that's going to have an eternal reward to it. But see, we don't really understand that. Instead, churches have gotten to the place where we're not coming to church and tarrying together and laboring and praying at the altar. And we don't really be doing that much anymore. We come to church not to bake the cake, but to have a slice of cake given to us. Not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's a step away from what the Bible's teaching us. Not only that, some Christians have graduated, and I think COVID accelerated this, where you don't really have to come to church. You just get online somewhere. As long as you're getting the information, as long as you're grabbing a podcast, sometimes you can listen to it on your way to, you know, to work, and you can multitask and do other things. And, and by the way, I, I love and appreciate technology, and I love and appreciate that we, we have such ready access to the Word of God, both in the Bible form, but also in teachings. And that's such a blessing here in the 21st century, but none of that replaces what the Word of God teaches about the collection of the body coming together. And, and I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor and I think it's really great when you show up. I'm saying it's absolutely a necessity in the recipe. Christianity is a very personal thing. It's not a private thing. Not, not anywhere. It's a personal thing. But growth in Christianity has to be done in community. There are certain aspects of your Christian life you will never, ever, ever grow in unless you're in community. And, and these are just Bible principles. It's part of the recipe, if you will. And so we, we need to refamiliarize our, ourselves with that so that we can understand the Bible doesn't change. The recipe works. It works the way we, we you know, that, we, that we, we work it. And, uh, and Paul promised that he would do it. And, and so all of that's really, really important that we take a look. Now, I, I want to fine-tune a couple of other points, and then we're going to get right to Matthew 28, which is where our actual study starts this morning. But all this is important setup, so you'll know how to posture, because the series we're going to study is really important, but it's a little bit different than we normally do. And so the first thing I want you to know, again, back to the cooking illustration, is 
these ingredients, the, these, these particular things uh, that we're going to look, these disciplines, if you will, um, while every ingredient is important and essential, you can't say, yeah, I only want those three. They all have to come together and they're all proportionate, especially when it comes to your life. Here's what I can promise you, partially because as I've studied it, uh, it's not my first time around this recipe book, but as I've studied it, I'm realizing, well, I probably need to pay attention to that a little more. I can promise you that you're either going to discover or in a number of cases rediscover ingredients or disciplines of the Christian life that you knew were there. You just haven't thought about them in a long time. Some of you don't want to think about them. Because you had a bad experience, it's super painful, it's just really hard, and you know, so you don't want to, to, to think about it. But the bottom line is the recipe doesn't change. And we have to come back and at least look at it. Uh, and in those, in those cases, when you suddenly feel the, the kind of the sting, if you will, to of realizing, oh, I, I haven't thought about that in a long time, and honestly, I don't want to think about it. Here's what I want you to remember. Conviction from the Holy Spirit, when he kind of says, hey, I need to talk to you about something, or he points to an area of your life, conviction's a wonderful thing. It doesn't feel wonderful. It's kind of, you know, personally embarrassing. It's, sometimes it's painful, and, and it definitely rubs against what you'd prefer. That's why you've drifted, because you didn't want to be in that area. But convic conviction by the Holy Spirit's a wonderful thing. It means he loves you. It means he's trying to move you back. Listen to me, condemnation is not. So when we come across these areas, like we might land on one right away this morning, and all of a sudden you realize, ah, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I don't even want to think about that. You know, listen, allow the Holy Spirit to convict or to convince you, no, you need to reconsider, you need to open your heart. But the moment that condemnation comes and you start feeling guilty and ashamed, let me just cut that right here. Romans chapter eight, verse one says, there is never any condemnation if you're a Christ follower. Because the law of the, of the life in Jesus Christ has completely set us free. You know what that means? Because that Jesus paid the price for our sin and we've been born into God's family, we're free to be imperfect. We can stand in front of a perfect God and we can open our heart to our imperfections and let him come talk to us about that with any fear of judgment with any fear of condemnation, it doesn't make him mad. It's endearing to him that his child would come and say, I sure could use some help here. Or when he touches something and says, I want to talk to you about that, and his child doesn't start getting defensive and run away, you know, his, his child softens their heart and says, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I really need some help. We're free to live as imperfect people, growing in the Lord. So no condemnation at all, even though we will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit because he's going to point to stuff so we can better posture our heart. And here's the, here's the, la the last thing I'll say with that, um, and that is that everybody here needs, needs this study. Everybody does, starting with me. I don't care if you were born out of your mother's womb saved or you just got saved on the way into church today. Listen, like Pastor Brandon uh, said a moment ago, Bible knowledge and Bible practice are not constants. It's not something where you learn it and you do it. Whoo, glad I checked that box. And now it's just automatic. No, these are disciplines, they're practices in life. And they're things you have to keep stirring up. You have to keep strengthening. You have to keep rebuilding the foundations. Over and over, the Bible instructs us and says that if we don't sharpen, 
If we don't keep focusing, if we don't come back and build that and strengthen it, then, then we're going to be susceptible to a drift and we will fall susceptible to deception. And so it's really important. By the way, that's why the Apostle Paul said, be diligent, spudazzo, make every effort, strain every nerve. Make this your priority and lean in because you want to make sure of everything that you're endeavoring to do in life, you want to make sure building a strong Christian life is your number one most important thing. And to help you with that, we got a couple of key supports that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, the first one is, uh, this is the first week where we'll start in connect groups. Now again, I already said Christianity is a private thing. I mean, I'm sorry, it's a personal thing, very intimate between you and the Lord. Nowhere in scripture can you show me it's a private thing. In fact, everywhere in scripture says it's not a private thing. It's supposed to be lived in community. Starting in your home, by the way, it's weird these days for spouses to even talk about spiritual stuff. That shouldn't be. We have to reawaken that area. It's weird for parents and kids to have discussion about deeper things of the heart. And yeah, but, but what, why do you feel that way? But what, what, do you feel, what do you think the Lord wants to do there? And it's just weird to have those conversations. It shouldn't be. It should be normal for us. And so we have to go back and deepen those. But we also have connect groups here where you can begin to get together with groups of other believers that are like-minded we're studying the same thing. We're, none of us are perfect, but we're willing to put a piece of ourselves on the table to say, that one's hard for me. Really? I thought it was just me. No, and finally the whole room was like, all of us, man, that's a, that's a struggle. And we learn to sharpen and encourage. And so uh, maybe a next step for you in really helping to grow would be to get into a connect group. Uh, I would suggest you try to lean into that this week. Here's the last one. And then we're gonna get to Matthew 28 right away. Uh, the last one is this workbook. Uh, these are free, by the way. Uh, you can grab a, down, uh, a hard copy, or if you're like digital, then you can go grab a, a downloadable copy. Um, but the cool thing about this is no matter what campus you normally attend, like you're at Tiga K today, but if you, you know, normally at another campus, and um, these, this is going to be our center line of what we're going to be studying. And so you, no matter what pastor's teaching it, a little bit different style and approach, but the center line's always gonna be here. You can follow along, you can go back and reference these scriptures. And the other, the other thing that you have in these particular workbooks, you'll get th three to four lessons at a time. Uh, in some of these areas, the like, really important parts, uh, we're gonna have appendixes. And so you, you think, well, I'd like to know a little more about that. Well, we're not gonna cover it in Sunday morning but we might just point to it. And there's an appendix back there. You can read through some things uh, on your own and that should be really, really helpful as well. And then finally, there's recommendations on every one of these ingredients. Boy, I really wanna learn more about that. Okay, here's a couple of resources. Here's something that's gonna give you practicality, an article, uh, an easy to read book or something that will help you to get deeper. So super valuable, absolutely free. Pick one up on your way out if you didn't get one or download one digitally and uh, join the study with us. You don't have to be part of the church, by the way, to pick up a book. You don't have to be part of a connect group. Uh, they're just for us as individuals, but as connect group uh, people, we can come together and use them for reference. All right. I think you've got the overview of where we're headed now. And uh, so today we're going to talk about the first ingredient uh, is a passion for souls. And, and if you're like me, when I first thought, well, we, that should be first, I thought, no way, no way. A passion for souls was one of the hardest things for me to grow and develop in, uh, in my Christian life. And I'll explain a little bit why. 
But a passion for souls, it, it feels like, well, shouldn't we get a little more of the fundamentals first before we talk about just, you know, starting to share with other people and wanting other people to get born again? But I should turn to Matthew chapter 28 because Jesus gives what is one of the two times that in the Gospels that he mentions what most Christians know as the Great Commission. Now, let me just give you a very honest, honest truth. Jesus gives two times in the Gospels, the great co-mission. In other words, he's saying, here's the, the assignment. Here's the mission I'm on. This is the passion of my heart. And I'm asking you to join me to be a co-mission in this with me. But the truth is, the majority of Christians, at least in today's culture, are more part of the great omission. And, and, and it's not because they don't love Jesus, it's not because they don't believe in Jesus, it's because of some other areas surrounding it that complicate this. But if we don't go back and we don't reignite a passion and a perspective for the great commission, we're going to end up living our lives in the great omission. And when you do that, let me just tell you what happens, everything else in your Christian life gets skewed. Let me give you an example I think might be helpful. Uh, when we look in the, in kind of the, uh, you know, not a spiritual, but just the broad aspect of, of life, if you don't understand the sanctity of human life, different and above every other life form, then your perspective everywhere else in life, I can promise you, is going to be skewed. It doesn't mean that it's a completely wrong perspective, that's a throwaway, that you don't love God, and I'm just saying it's skewed. Your lens is distorted, and you don't see things right, and because of that, your, your personal life will, will, not, will not be focused. Your relational life will not be focused. Uh, not only that, but your political life, your, your social life, um, your economic life, and we could just go on and on. All of those things will be skewed because you don't understand that the Bible says that God made all of the living things on the earth, put them on the earth, and then just before he said, okay, that's a wrap, everything looks great, the Bible says we got one more creation. And the Bible said that he made man completely separate and different. He made man in his own image. And, and the one thing we want to grab this morning, what he meant by that was mankind, unlike every other life form, I don't care what Disney movie you watch or whatever, every other life form is different. Mankind is the only one that has a spiritual component that enables him or her to live forever somewhere. Now, God came back and said, I'm going to give you your time on the earth and let you decide where you want to live forever. But here's what you're not going to get to decide. This is kind of part of the wiring. You have a component that will put you in a place where you will live forever somewhere. And then the Bible points to two destinations and two only. And we can come up with a lot of other concepts and, you know, thoughts and, and this in-between, you know, holding place. And the Bible says there's only two, only two. You're either going to live forever in a place called heaven that is more wonderful than you can possibly understand. In fact, Ephesians said heaven is so wonderful that we want, when those of us that get there, we will spend all of eternity, that means forever and ever and ever, 
all of eternity with God unfolding the riches of his grace to us. Here's what that means. You might be there for 10,000 years, which I know your brain's already like, well, what is 10,000 years? And, and then God's like, hey, so how do you like this? All this, I mean, I wouldn't even have dreamed. It's so incredible, so wonderful. So you like everything, you feel good? Oh yeah, it's just really great. Watch this. No reruns in heaven. No boredom in heaven. No, yeah, I've already been there. I already got the t-shirt. I did that already. God just keeps unfolding and unfolding. Heaven keeps expanding. Heaven keeps deepening. Heaven keeps getting richer in terms of its experience for us because heaven, life with God forever, it's just, it's, it's never ending. On the contrast, the Bible says that this place called hell is more painful, more tormenting, more depressing, more debilitating, more agonizing than we can even possibly conceive. So much so that in order for us to live in heaven in this wonderful place, well, these earthly bodies, they don't work because they're so limited to here. So the Bible says that we leave these earthly bodies and we go to heaven and we get a brand new heavenly body that's equipped to live on that heavenly level, like forever and to this ever expanding, right? People that go to hell get new bodies too. Because these physical bodies, if you inflict enough pain, they will die. But people that go to hell get new bodies too. And they get bodies that are pain resistant. You feel everything, but pain resistant forever. And hell is a horrible, horrible, I mean, unimaginably horrible place. And the Bible talks a lot about it. Jesus talked a lot about hell, trying to help people to understand the gravity. Listen, you get to choose while you're here where you're going to live forever. You're going to live forever somewhere. Everybody does. But while you're here, you get to make a choice. But once you leave here, the choice has been made. You know, purgatories and we're praying, lighting candles. That's not a scriptural truth. It's just not. You can't find it in the Bible. Once people leave here, whatever their choice was, whether they accepted the Lord Jesus or they rejected him, either they did it you know, passively, uh, just because they just didn't accept, which is rejection, or they did it, you know, adamantly, like, I will never believe in that. Listen, it doesn't matter. Once they leave here, if they did not accept the Lord Jesus, the Bible says they will spend e eternity in this place that is more tormenting, more agonizing, more painful than, than we can possibly imagine. Uh, I put some things in your appendix, in your notes, if you want to go look, just some things that the Bible says about hell that was just kind of mind-blowing when you look at it. I'm like, man, I, I just don't know how to wrap my head around it. Well, it's important for us to understand these things because when you recognize the weightiness of eternal life and how temporary life is here, then it helps you to begin to assess, so how am I spending my time and my energy? There are a lot of people that are, I mean, they're working overtime, 60, 70 hours a week and pushing it, you know, here, there, and strategizing and everything else, all for stuff. Don't get me wrong, stuff's wonderful. Stuff's included in the blessings of God while we're here, but all for stuff that the moment they leave here, they don't take one little ounce of that with them. And some of them, Proverbs says, some of them will give their, whole, their, will, will give their own soul or, or, or will gain the whole world, actually accomplish everything they want to, but they'll do it because they lost their own soul. They'll spend an eternity away from God. And they're gonna spend an eternity thinking about that. Man, did I mess up? What was I thinking? 
Uh, there's, a, there's this movie, Schindler's List. It's been a long, around for a long time. Very moving movie. It's got some scenes in it, by the way. I wouldn't recommend it for kids. But, uh, but the end scene is just so powerfully gripping. It's about Oscar Schindler, who back in World War II, 19, late 1930s, I think, he's a businessman, moves to Germany because he sees this opportunity to make a ton of money, and he does. And the factory's growing, and he's doing really well. And then here comes the German. They start extinguishing the Jewish people. And a lot of those Jewish people were workers in his factory. And so completely selfish, self-preservation. He works out deals with the Germans, starts paying bribes off and stuff to get them to overlook his workers just because he wanted to keep the factory running and make money. But the deeper you get into the movie, he begins to realize it's not just about keeping the factory going, it's about rescuing lives. And all the way at the end, the final scene, he's surrounded by 1,100 or so of the over 1,300 that he was able to rescue from the Holocaust. And, uh, and they're presenting him with a letter of appreciation and trying to explain to him. And it's such an emotional scene when he begins to realize, I could have done more. And he leans into the guy presenting him with a word and he whispers and he said, I, I could have done so much more. He said, I, I had all this money. I wasted so much money. And he, he points, he says, this car, this car right here. Someone wanted to buy this car. That's 10 people right there. 10 people just because of that car. He takes off a gold pin. He says, this, this pin, this is real gold. He said, that's two people right there. And I'm telling you, there's going to be sobering times for many of us as we stand before the Lord and we realize, could have did so much more. There's people that are not in heaven with us because we had to chase these other things. And, and this is really important that we stop. Again, there's no condemnation. Remember, no condemnation at all. But to help us to come back and realign and say, if we don't understand the, the weightiness of temporary life here and an eternal life somewhere, and we don't make good decisions about our own life, we don't think about our, our spouse, we don't think about our kids and their eternity, we don't think about extended family, we don't think about our coworkers, we don't think about our fellow students, we don't think, we don't think, we don't think. And by the time we do realize, uh, sometimes it's, it's too late. I read a book, uh, I don't know, sometime in my early 40s, I'm 59, uh, and it was called Halftime. And the whole premise of the book is really accurate. It's like, you know, you, you get into your first years of adult life and you got all this excitement and you just have this idealistic perspective and you've learned some stuff and, and you can't wait to unleash your gifts on the world because you're pretty sure, man, I can do it better than anybody else have. And the first part of your adult life uh, is spent chasing success. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Proverbs says that the glory of a young man or woman is their strength, their zeal. They're, I mean, they're just going to make it happen. That's awesome. But something happens, what we call in the midlife, midlife crisis or midlife realization, something happens and you leave a passion for success and you start measuring life by significance. You know, there's the saying that nobody on their deathbed said, I just wish I'd have spent a few more hours in the office. I just wish I'd have closed that one more deal. Everybody on their deathbed realizes that all the stuff that they might have compiled, they start asking themselves, but what was all that for? Spent my whole life building a com company. I'm going to hand it to some knucklehead who's probably going to disassemble it in the next five to 10 years. And yet that was my whole life. I lost my family. I lost my marriage. I have no idea who I really am as a person. I just gave everything. And all of a sudden, things that are important, things that are significant begin to shine. And that's the reason why us understanding what it means for, for people 
and their eternities has to come number one. Because once we realize that, it dials everything. It doesn't mean we sell everything and, you know, we live an impoverished life so that we can uh, try to help other people. There's a balance, and that's those ingredients. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? And how does this proportion? But if it's not even on the counter, you're not even willing to pull it out of the pantry. And when someone brings it up, yeah, I, I just don't really like that. I don't like it. I'm just telling you, it's everything else is going to skew, All right? So Matthew chapter 28, this won't take long. We've set up a great introduction. I've set up what we're going to study. This should be pretty easy for us to see. Uh, Matthew 28, I'm going to show you three important aspects of the Great Commission. Won't take very long, and they'll land really well for you. And then three reasons why most Christians just don't engage, why they're part of the Great Omission instead. So the first important aspect of the Great Commission we can find in Matthew 28, where in verse number 18, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Look at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The first and most important aspect of the Great Commission is for you to realize it's a commandment. We're all about the, great, the Ten Commandments, right? I'm not saying we all do them all like we should, but we're all about, and all those, that's the Ten Commandments. Are you kidding me? But this commandment is, is legit, and it's for the New Testament Christians that should be a governing force that will focus our lens on what we're to be endeavoring to do. And he said, here's the commandment. He says, I want you to go. In fact, that word goes from the Greek word poria, and it actually means go and don't stop going. In other words, Jesus is not challenging you to go on a short-term mission. We support Bolivia here, and, and we're totally excited about that, and we're looking forward to, for the company, country to open back up and us to get back in there. But listen to me, that's not the limit of what Jesus is asking you to do. As long as you go on a short-term mission trip, as long as you get to the pantry and you're helping them you know, pass out stuff, and no, no, he's saying, listen, you should go and keep going and going and going and going and going. Your whole life should be about what can I do to make it possible so that other people can come in and experience the kingdom of God. Now, I've got supporting scriptures in your notebooks there, but let me just give you one example that kind of, you know, cuts right to the intensity of this commandment, and it's in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18. Here God's speaking to the prophet, like through him, to him, through him, to the people, and here's what God said. If I warn the wicked, saying you are under the penalty of death, but you fail to deliver the warning... They will die in their sins, and listen to this, I will hold you responsible for their deaths. He goes on and he says, if you warn them and they refuse to repent and keep on sinning, they will die in their sins, but you will have said, saved yourself because you obeyed me. And so he's saying this is so important that if I've written the word of God, if I've said this is what it means to be saved and have an eternity in heaven as opposed to going to hell, and you know that, and you come across people that are on the wrong path, and you don't find a way to tell them, he says, I'm holding you responsible. Now, let me kind of take a little bit of the edginess off of that. He's not talking about losing your salvation. The only one's truly responsible for people's eternity is Jesus. The Holy Spirit's partnered with him. What he's talking about is our part in the assignment. So the blessings the Lord's given us, the energies, the focus, the opportunities to share what God's done with other people, all of those things now come under scrutiny. And he says, if you didn't tell them, then you're responsible. You're part of the com com company. I've given you company funds. I've given you company transportation. I've given you company connections and opportunity, and you're not doing your job. I'm going to hold you responsible for that. 
So, but it's not your eternal salvation, so don't you know, feel the weight like, oh my gosh, I didn't tell my neighbor about Jesus, maybe I'm going to hell. No, that's not what he's saying. He is saying, though, that your blessings and the, the things that God's entrusting you to, to set you up to be part of this commission, if you're refusing to engage in that, he's going to want to talk to you about it. He's going to want to call you up to the office and say, hey, we, we got to talk about this because this is really, really important. Okay, now listen again, no condemnation, right? We can all just stand free in Jesus and say, ah, that's me. That's me. That's me. Help me with this, Lord. So the first one is the, is the commandment. The second one in the Great Commission has to do with the assignment, and the assignment is to make disciples of all nations. By the way, that word nations comes from the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get ethnicity. It's not talking about, again, country, political lines, you know, um, statehood. It's not talking about any of that. It's talking about, I don't care where the person's from, what their background's from, what language they speak, first language, second language, third language, what color their skin is, and what their culture. I don't care about any of that. He says, it doesn't matter what nationality what ethnicity that they've grown up in, you get to make disciples. If you cross their path, then you get to be part of that. And, and it's really important to recognize the, the term make disciples comes from this Greek instruction uh, that describes a process of helping someone else to become a learner or a pupil or a devoted follower of Christ. The reason I bring that out, because what you're not responsible for to make disciples is to turn people into perfect model Christians. I can't even do that. That's not what we're responsible for. What you're responsible for is to keep encouraging them and moving them along in their journey to get close to Jesus and then to commit their life to him and become a learner or let, them, let him shape their life. That's all you're, you're doing. And by the way, you're the perfect one to do that. Yeah, but you don't understand. You know my background. That's why you're perfect. Because you're going to find areas like, yeah, dude, I totally remember that. I went through that same thing like five or six times. And the first couple of times, I totally messed it up. And, but then God began to show me something. And here's how the last three times have gone. Not perfect yet, but let me just share something with you. You're the perfect person to talk to somebody who doesn't know God or doesn't know God well because you've been there. And so making disciples is really important. But, but then he talks about how to do it. He says, baptizing and teaching them. So the word baptize comes from the word baptismo, and it means to immerse. But it, in here, it's talking about people that actually, you know, go under the water and they do it as a public testimony to say, hey, listen, uh, I'm trading my life. When I go under the water, uh, what I want you to see is that my old life stays under there and I'm standing up and I'm a brand new person. I'm clean, I'm washed, got a fresh start, and I'm going to commit my life to Jesus. That's what baptism services are supposed to look like. And then he says that we're also supposed to teach them, and it, it's this particular term that means to inform or to, to instruct or to demonstrate. But listen, it's not talking about formal education only. It's talking about informal. It's not just talking about, you know, how to factually seam a case together, but it's talking about how you just practically live it out. It means that lots of times we're teaching people with our words, and then there's lots of times that we're teaching them with our life. We're just doing life and living. We're just kind of walking through this with him. So he says, we're responsible to make disciples, to encourage people along this path to become a follower of Jesus. And the way we do it is we share our testimony so they can commit themselves to the Lord and accept Jesus as Savior. And then we encourage them. Well, then seal that, man. Get baptized. Come on, let's just make a commitment to that. And then we, we help them to stay along the journey to grow up in what it means to, to serve Christ. It's not religion. 
It's just real life relationship, how we're growing along, which leads us to, to, to the kind of the funnest part to talk about in the Great Commission. We've talked about the commandment. We've talked about the assignment. But, but here's the last part, the promise. He says in, in Matthew 28, 20, he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's a lot of things we can look at there, uh, but that little tiny word, lo, you, you kind of overlook it, right? It's just something they threw in there. But it's this little tiny Greek word that is sprinkled throughout the New Testament. And every time it's in there, it's to help you to stop. And, and we, we, might, we might say it this way, instead of lo, we'd say, whoa. It's to help you to stop and realize something that's being said is amazing here. Something that's being said is not going to be your run-of-the-mill, the normal. Something that's being said or that's being promised is going to make you go, whoa, no way. And what it's pointing to here is that Jesus said that, that if you will go and just do what I'm asking you to do, just tell people about the difference Jesus has made in your life. You're not perfect. Don't be embarrassed about that. Just say, hey, I'm still working on some stuff here. But just tell people about what Jesus has done and help them along their journey to get to know God and make these commitments and then to keep growing and following him. If you'll just engage that, here's what Jesus said. He says, you're going to experience the most amazing thing. And here's what that amazing thing is. Every time that you just share a part of yourself and you let other people know about what, who Jesus is, Jesus said, I will show up. And not only will I show up, I will go to work. I'll work through what you're saying and doing, and I'll keep working in them even after you walk away. And by the way, I'll keep doing that all the way to the end of the age. I will never, ever, ever stop doing that. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul was talking about. Now, remember him. He's been all over the place, right? He went into uncharted territory. People didn't even know about this God. Who's God? One God? We we serve multiple gods. And and then other people knew about it but didn't like Jesus and religious leaders. And I mean, Paul just went through it. But he's in every kind of venue, talking to every kind of person. And in Romans 1.16, he says, but here's what I've learned. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It started with the Jews, but now it's been given to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles or to the Greeks. And that word power is the word dunamis, and it's an explosive power. In fact, where it's used elsewhere and here, it it really is used to describe an invading army. An army that invades uh, enemy territory and goes in there and recaptures what rightfully belong to them and sets people free. It brings salvation. Paul says, I don't care what setting I've been in. Here's what I've, here's what I've experienced. Every time I'll go and just do what I'm supposed to do, whether it was hard, whether it was weird, whether it was uncomfortable, whether it was awkward, whether I saw any results or I didn't see results. Every time I just go and do what I'm supposed to do, he said, every single time the power of God shows like, up like an invading army. It steps in and through what I'm trying to share and it goes into that person's heart and it begins to go to work to fight, to recapture what has been stolen away from them and to help that person to see who God really intends them to be and how God wants to come in and heal and restore their life. We don't see that a lot of time. But that's exactly what Jesus promised. He said, and I'm gonna keep doing this all the way to the end of the age. If you'll do your part, I promise you, the most amazing thing, I'll show up and do my part. And so when we read that, we're like, okay, well, then what's the problem here? Well, the problem is what Paul confessed. He says, I'm no longer ashamed of the gospel. And and that word ashamed literally means to be red in your face. 
It means to get in situations where like, oh, and you just feel embarrassed. Like, I just want to shrink back into the shadows. Like, no, I don't, I don't want to say that. And this is weird. I'd be weird in this conversation. I don't want to put that up. But, but it literally means to be ashamed. But when you stop and you realize, yeah, but God promised if you do, the power of God. I mean, like an, like an army comes and just pierces and invades that person. And long after you're gone, it's working in their heart to help them to see things clearly and understand things they didn't understand before and to, to begin to spring hope up that God really does love them. All that crazy stuff's happening. Why in the world would we be ashamed? And I'm going to give you three practical reasons, super, super quick. Three practical reasons. The first one is because many Christians feel, and I'm going to emphasize the word feel, feel unequipped to share the gospel. Now, some of that feeling, okay, maybe I'll give you a little bit of flex. It's like an immaturity. Well, I've only been saved like, you know, two days, and I don't know enough, enough about the gospel myself, and so I don't feel prepared. Like, what if they ask me a question I don't know? Well, then you say, I don't know. I've only been saved two days but it's been the most amazing two days of my life. You know, Here's why I accepted Jesus, and you share what you have. But some people just, they're immature in this thing, and they feel, but listen, so many more Christians than that, they're not immature, listen carefully, they're insecure. They feel like if they get out there and they, you know, they're gonna get in a conversation, and number one, we're in a cancel culture, that's just super dangerous and super weird, but they're gonna be asked the questions, like, ah, I feel so stupid, I don't know, or someone's gonna say, yeah, but you're not even living that out. And they're gonna feel like, ah, oh, well, you're right, you know, and so they feel insecure. Once again, no condemnation if you're a believer. Because of what Jesus did, we're free to be imperfect. Now, you're not free to stay imperfect and live in your imperfection, like flaunt it. Paul says to the Galatians church, I'm not talking about sinning so that, you know, just you can brag about God's grace. He said, no, that you got the equation backwards. God, God forbids that. We're talking about coming, coming to grips with the fact that I'm still working on it and not being afraid to share that with the Lord, with other believers, but with people that you come across. Hey, by the way, I, I need to share something with you. And as soon as I share it, you're going to go like, no way, dude. You, how can you tell me that? And I'm going to have to confess to you because I haven't been living it. So I just want you to know right off the bat, this is an imperfect guy sharing something that is more perfect than I understand, but you have to hear it. And that's what the Bible says we're supposed to do. So feeling unequipped, ill-equipped, um, this is not in your book. You can write this one down, but in Galatians chapter two, we don't have time to turn there. In Galatians chapter two, verse 20, uh, Paul talks about the fact that sometimes when I'm just trying to live my life, I realize I don't have what it takes until like, oh yeah, it's Christ that's living in me. And so everything I do, I don't approach it like it's just me by myself. It's me, but God's right here with me. And he says, okay, if you'll stay with me, I can do this. And that certainly is true with sharing your faith. Here's the second reason why people are ashamed, because they're afraid of, what others, of how others will respond. And that's really interesting because uh, we share lots of things in life, well, maybe some more than others, uh, that we, we're not sure we're going to get a great response, but the moment's there and we're like, hey, Maybe this is my thing. Maybe it's not your thing, but it's my thing. And we just share it like that. And we, especially people we're close to. Um, but Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is in your book, one of the scriptures, by the way. And, uh, and the church was all like, you know, well, that person doesn't share right. And when that person shares, you know, people, don't, people won't respond because of the way that person's sharing. And other people are like, what, what are you talking about? The only reason I respond was because that person shared. And you got Peter and Apollos and other, you know, a whole bunch of others. And, 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 and he, he says this in 1 Corinthians 3. Listen to this. Uh, Paul says, I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it but it was God who made it grow. 
And then he goes on, he said, it's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What is important is that God made the seeds grow. And the implication is, what is important is the seed was planted. What happens when everybody stops planting seeds? You know, in Genesis, the Bible said that God created every living thing, every plant, every animal to reproduce after their own kind. Which means every tree, every bush, every fruit, you know, every vine, every animal, every fish. And they have in and of themselves the ability to procreate, to keep that going. By the way, so do humans. That's why our human race is still here and we've enjoyed families and children. But that's not just a physical application. That's true to, in the spiritual application. We have, we carry through our experiences, through the things that we know to be true about God, through the words of God, we carry with us bags of seed that other people are desperate for. You know what the challenge is though? In today's 21st century Christianity, we're producing seedless Christians. Super convenient, super fun. You know, there's those messy seeds you got to mess with. But listen to me, it won't reproduce. People's lives can't be changed because we're too unwilling to pull the seeds out of our pocket and say, listen, this, I'm kind of getting real vulnerable here, but uh, I just got to tell you that this is what God is, is helping me with. And I just feel like you need to know because you're going through something similar. But we won't, even, we won't even plant seeds. And Paul says, listen to me, it doesn't matter who plants. It doesn't matter who waters. Listen, God's the one making it harvest anyway. He's the one that brings the army and goes to work. You're just responsible to pull the seeds out of your pocket. Or if somebody else planted, you splash a little water on it. You know, listen, you, you may share experience or share something with somebody or invite them to church or whatever. And they may be like, dude, I don't want to hear any of that religion stuff. And they blow you off. In fact, don't even talk to me again. I'm going to go sit on the other side of the room. And that's never pleasant, super uncomfortable. But here's what you probably don't think about is you might be the first one to put your pickaxe in the ground and break up a hard piece of soil in their heart so that someone two days later can come along and say, hey, by the way, I want to share something with you. I thought I'd invite you to church. It's so weird that you would say that because two days ago, some guy comes up to me at my office and he's trying to invite me to church. And, but now it's not so hard. Now the Holy Spirit's at work. And pretty soon, enough people are planting, enough people are watering, and you get to that magic moment where somebody talks to him about God and he says, you know what, I'm, I'm just ready. When you get to experience the harvest, when you get to be there at the right time and someone actually accepts Jesus, oh my gosh, that's the most wonderful thing in the world. Because they'll tell you what a difference it made. But most of us won't always get to experience that. We'll be somewhere else in the farming process, breaking up the ground, throwing a seed in the ground, putting a couple more seeds in the ground, putting some water on it, making sure some fertilizer gets on it, and, and that's our part. And at some point, God will say, okay, today's the day. And he'll bring somebody, maybe you along, and say, today's the day that that person's gonna say, okay, I'm ready to turn my life over. But if we're not planting seeds because we're afraid how they respond, their response is not the issue. The issue is that we're planting the seed and let the Holy Spirit go to work. Here's the last one, and, and we're done. The last reason people get uh, ashamed is because they haven't experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but, but I want to say it differently. They haven't experienced the power, the confidence, the boldness that comes from knowing that the Holy Spirit is working with you. And, and this is really important. In fact, uh, you'll find it in your workbooks. We don't have time to go through the story. Great story in Acts chapter 4 uh, where 
Peter and John, uh, they prayed for a guy and he got totally healed and miraculous and everybody came around, what's going on? And, and then they started preaching about Jesus and how this is who he is and this is what he wants to do. And the religious leaders got super mad. And all of a sudden, they created the ultimate cancel culture. They literally arrested Peter and John, held them in prison overnight, beat them severely the next day with rods and whips, and then brought them in front of the religious leaders. And they said, listen to me, we're going to let you go, but don't you ever, ever mention the name of Jesus again. You can talk about God, but don't you ever bring up Jesus again. If you ever do that again, we'll kill you. And then they let him go. And Peter and John go back to the, to the church group that they were involved in who'd been praying for them because they didn't come home from last night's service and they're worried about them. And, and then they heard about them being in prison. So they're praying for them. And Peter and John come back and they're sharing with them all the stuff that happened. And you would think that they would say, you know, let's just take a moment right now. Let's just thank the Lord that they didn't kill us, that we're out of prison. And by the way, we're not going to make that mistake again. But they did thank the Lord for the deliverance. And they said, okay, now let's turn our prayers and say, God, Give us boldness. Give us confidence to keep on preaching the gospel. Don't let us be intimidated by anything or anybody because people's lives are on the line. These people are going to spend eternity somewhere. And you and I have the privilege of being part of that small little parts here and there, but part of it nonetheless. And they said, give us boldness and give it confidence. And, the, and it says, and you find that passage in your workbook, that as they prayed, the Holy Spirit came and listened something supernatural where they were like really intimidated and insecure. It's like, ah, that's just not me, man. I'm just, I'm just you know, I don't want like to get in those cancel culture conversations. Something happened in them and they were like, no, I'm, I'm going to share. I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to share it graciously, sensitively but I'm not going to run away from that anymore. Supernaturally, God built a confidence and a boldness, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the last scripture uh, that I'm going to give. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is Jesus talking to the disciples, heading into Jerusalem to wait for this empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus said. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And listen, and then you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, starting right where you're at in Jerusalem and then moving out to Judea and then to Samaria. In fact, no matter where you travel all the way around the world, you'll have what it takes to be my witnesses. Here's what's interesting. He doesn't say do witnessing. I told you that it was, this was one of the struggles for me because I grew up in this church where we would do these evangelistic weekends. And we'd all get together at the church and they'd hand us a big stack of tracks and we'd kind of get dropped off in a neighborhood. Okay, this whole side of the block's yours. And we just had to walk up and knock on the doors. And here I am, a middle school guy and I'm kind of chubby and I'm insecure anyway. And the last thing I need is to get doors slammed in my face, is to get people laughing at me, is to get people ripping the track up right in front of me. And, you know, but the, all those things happen. And I walked away thinking, I'm not doing this witnessing thing, like ever. I'm not doing it. But notice, it, it didn't say that when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll do witnessing for me. He said, you'll be my witness. You know, whenever a, a, a prosecuting attorney is trying to build a case, he looks for and sequesters people that have firsthand knowledge. And he calls you in, and, and, and at the appropriate time, he says, now I'm going to call so-and-so up to the witness stand. And used to, in all the courts, some of them uh, are not doing it now, but used to, in all the courts, you'd stand up in front, put your hand on the Bible, and say, I swear to tell the truth the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And then, so help me God. And then they'd start asking you questions. On the night of so-and-so, you know, did you see? I, I didn't see that. Well, were you there? Yeah, I was there. 
Was it you didn't see? No, I didn't see that. I, I was, my attention was somewhere else, but I was definitely in the room. Okay, so, so you have nothing to offer as far as what you saw? Uh, nothing, I, I don't know. Well, did you hear? Yeah, I did hear because I was sitting right next and I overheard the conversation. Shouldn't have been listening in, but I kind of do that sometimes. I eavesdrop and so I could hear what they were saying and here's what I heard. Okay, so you did hear something. And then what, what about, you know, afterwards when so-and-so came, I don't know anything about that. I had already left by that point. Here's my point. When the Holy Spirit gives you opportunity, he's asking you to come and be his witness. He's trying to build a case in someone's life. He's trying to prove to them that they don't have to spend an eternity away from God. He's trying to prove to them, I love you. I'm not mad at you. I'm trying to forgive you. I'm trying to heal. I'm trying to turn things around right here, but take you on into an eternity. The Bible says God so loved the world that he couldn't fathom living without these people forever. It's like one of your kids not being able to be with you ever again. You just can't fathom that. And God so loved the world that he sent Jesus on this rescue mission. You and I have the opportunity when the time comes, the Holy Spirit will call and say, hey, Gil, will you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? I don't know, man, that's kind of scary. I know, but I'll be right here with you. But I don't know what to say. I know, but I'm gonna gonna feed you the questions. I'll I'll just walk you through it. But what if they ask me something I don't know? Then just say, I don't know. You don't worry about that. All I want you to do is tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And I want you to give them everything you got, but nothing more. Can you do that for me? If you'll help me, I'll try. And that's all that the Lord's asking us to do. Listen, the moment we do that, something begins to happen in our heart. The fear leaves and a passion to see people come to Jesus begins to grow. There's three things that will help you today and I'm closing in prayer. Number one, just start with a prayer. Start it today before we leave. Ask the Holy Spirit, say, that's totally me. That's me, I I don't like this. I don't want to do that. But I'm asking you to come and do something in my heart and remind me of how important this is. Develop a passion in me and a sober perspective about the reality of eternity. Help me and then graciously, gently, just I'm fragile, walk me through, but give me opportunities to show how I can start little planting little seeds. And, and then you come back and you say, and Holy Spirit, as I begin to do that, teach me teach me, prop me up. I mean, wrap your arms around me when they feels like they reject me or they make fun of me. Wrap your arms around me and say, that's okay. You did your job. I'm, now let me take it from here and then help me to celebrate when that goes really well. And then listen, the last thing is then commit to him. Say with your help, as these things unfold, I'm going to do the best I can to be a doer of the word, not just a thinker and a talker and a prayer, but I'm going to begin to do, okay, I'll step in. It, it's a learning curve for sure. And I'm not asking you to be perfect, but I'm saying open your heart so the Holy Spirit can develop a passion for souls. It's such a key ingredient in a Christian life, and it'll, it'll calibrate everything else in your life. Bow your head. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God today. Thank you that you're so gracious. You're so gentle with us. We don't ever have to be afraid to admit that something's distasteful to us or awkward for us or painful for us, but we can open that back up and and you'll start right there unpacking that and rebuilding that part of our heart and our mind. We're asking in Jesus' name that you not only would give us clarity for this whole idea of an eternity, but ignite a passion in us to be part of the Great Commission. Lord, I pray that you would open the womb of Lakeshore Christian Fellowship like you never have before, that we would be prolific in people getting born for the first time 
some of them rededicating for the first time in a long time, but that every single week, Lord, that our church would experience people coming into the kingdom because we've not stayed in the walls, but we've gone out and you've built a passion in us and you've emboldened us and you've showed us how to share our faith and then you're doing the work and people are coming to Jesus. We thank you for all of this and we put it all in your hands because we cannot do this without you. for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.